Welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Town's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's our very first sponsor on Boston Confidential. And these guys are super easy to use. The name is Podcorn, and it's a marketplace for podcasters and advertisers. And that may actually not be a great representation because basically the advertisers just come to you as a podcaster. You sign up, follow the prompts. It's super easy. Everybody knows I'm not super technical, but I I could do it, and I know you can too. This is definitely the way to go. Let the advertisers chase you for a little bit. This is a great service. I'm glad they're a sponsor. I hope we can continue. And I just wanted to say thank you to them. And now we'll get on with our show. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator in Boston, Massachusetts. And I currently help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. And if I can't help you directly, I can certainly direct you to the correct person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. I have to issue a disclaimer for today's show. And I know I've done that before and people say, oh, it wasn't that bad. Well, this one is going to be that bad. This is the case of Colleen Ritzer, and it involves basically savagery. And there'll be times at this where your stomach is going to turn. So please be advised, this is extreme adult content, okay? This tragic murder happened in 2013. Colleen Ritzer was a 24-year-old math teacher at Danvers High School. Danvers is a pretty well-heeled town just north of Boston, 20 miles or so. Colleen hadn't been at the school long, just two school years she had served. She had grown up in Andover, Mass., which is further north from Boston, further north from Danvers as well, and she was still living at home with mom and dad when this tragedy occurred. Colleen was the oldest of three kids. She had a youngest sister, Laura, and a little brother, Danny, and they grew up, as I said, in Andover, Massachusetts. Colleen's mother, Peggy, had always said that Colleen was her Mother's Day gift. I guess Colleen was born just a day or two before Mother's Day, and she always said to Colleen on Mother's Day that you were the best gift I ever received on Mother's Day. Colleen's father, Thomas, rounded out the family, and Colleen was the apple of her parents' eye for about three and a half years until her little sister, Laura, arrived. And according to Colleen's mother, she loved being a big sister. A few years later, Danny, her little brother, arrived, and she kind of corralled these kids and was the quintessential big sister. Colleen loved mathematics from an early age, and right away she knew she wanted to teach it. She wanted to be a math teacher, and she strove in that direction for many years. She ended up graduating from Andover High in 2007 and went on to Assumption College, where she graduated 
as magna cum laude, so she was a serious person here. By the time Colleen was ready to enter the work world, those around her could see she was simply a ray of sunshine. She's just one of those positive people. She had developed a habit of putting good memories into a jar, and she'd do that every day of the year, and at the end of the year, she would read these and reminisce of the good times she had. She was an extremely positive person, bubbly and obviously super bright, graduating magna cum laude from Assumption College. Just doesn't get any better than that. Her dream job was to be a math teacher, and she was totally focused on that. Her first job after college was in Stowe when she worked for Hale Middle School. The following year, she was hired in Danvers, Massachusetts, Danvers High. She really wanted to be a high school teacher. She felt that was where she could do the most good. And keep in mind, she was only 24. She wasn't much older than these kids in high school. The first year at Danvers High, she didn't have her own classroom. She traveled, you know, throughout the periods from classroom to classroom. And she loved that enough. But the following year, she received her own classroom where she would stay all day. And she was super excited about that. She went in early before the school year to decorate. And she just loved it. She was living her dream. Colleen was one of those people that touched everybody that she met. And she quickly made friends at Danvers High School. So much so, in fact, that during school spirit week, they had a day where you dress like your friend. And Colleen's friend dressed just like her. And on October 23rd, 2013, they could be seen chatting in the hallway, dressed exactly alike. So that's the type of person Colleen was. Everybody that's described her said she was a passionate teacher, an excellent teacher, and was just full of life. So that brings us to October 23rd, 2013. The day started like any other. About 6.30 a.m., Colleen sticks her head into her parents' bedroom and says goodbye. She was leaving for the day. She left early for school. She got to school and taught all of her classes. But while she was teaching one of her math classes, uh, ninth grade freshman algebra, I believe it was, she saw one of her students, Philip Chisholm, who was drawing and not really participating in class. And she asked him to stay after school so she could help him. They had an upcoming algebra exam. And she believed if he was drawing during class, at least this is what I believe, if he was drawing during class, he would definitely need help with this exam that was coming up. And he nodded to her and said he would stay, but he began kind of talking under his breath. None of the other students could really make it out. Philip Chisholm was kind of a question mark. He was a new arrival to Danvers. He was actually a soccer star, and he had come to Danvers High by way of Tennessee, and he had left there, and it seems to be because of a divorce. He was up here with his mother, living with his mother, and there seemed to be some contentious divorce issues going on. But Philip was okay. He did make friends at Danvers High, but he wouldn't go out of his way to talk to you. He was kind of reserved. A big kid, skinny, about six foot tall, which is tall for a freshman, I think. Okay, guys, I'm going to have to issue another disclaimer here. We're about to get into the crime itself, and it is heartbreaking. It is savage, but I won't shy from it. I'm going to tell this story as exactly as it happened. I said I'll do this podcast without fear or favor, and that's what I'll do. But if you can't handle 
true crime at its highest level, you have to bail on this episode now, and I understand. So please be advised. Another student had witnessed Colleen and Philip Chisholm together about 3 p.m. She had walked by the classroom and noticed the teacher and Chisholm sitting together near her computer. There was an upcoming algebra exam the following Tuesday, and Colleen wanted him to be prepared for it. But shortly after this, Colleen gets up to go to the ladies' room, which is just down the hallway. And keep in mind that this school is covered by over 200 security cameras. So Colleen gets up to go to the bathroom and leaves the classroom. And she's followed on tape all the way into the ladies' room. But shortly thereafter, she's followed by Chisholm, who now is wearing white gloves and has pulled his hoodie sweatshirt up. So I suppose so he can't be recognized, but he's wearing these gloves. They're kind of like ones he'd wear in the garden. He followed Colleen Ritzer into the ladies' room, and he did the unspeakable. He beat and raped Colleen, and then he used the box cutter that he had brought with him, and he slashed her throat more than once and left her to die. During this time frame, a student had come into the ladies' room and saw Philip Chisholm's naked behind and didn't know what was going on, didn't even know this was a male, and she just left the ladies' room. He had beaten, choked, raped, and stabbed this teacher who had been nothing but kind to him. And after the attack, he goes and finds one of those large recycling bins that's wheeled like you'd wheel it to your curbside. And he placed Colleen's body into this receptacle and wheeled her out into the back area of the school, sort of near the sports fields are. Police would later say that Chisholm brought with him that day a box cutter, a mask, and a change of clothing. So that led them to believe that this was premeditated, pretty well thought out. But he wasn't done yet. He wheels Colleen's body in the receptacle to the rear of the school, very wooded, and he dumps her on the ground and positions her in a sexual manner. At that point, he inserts a large tree branch into her lower bodily orifice. Okay? It's unknown if Philip Chisholm sexually assaulted Colleen post-mortem, but Chisholm was last seen running from the area of the soccer field where he was actually due to participate in soccer practice, stating he had something to take care of. Chisholm, by that time, had changed clothing. He had brought another outfit with him, so the students didn't notice the fact that he would have been covered in blood. Chisholm was observed and caught on camera, wheeling the body in the receptacle outside of school. So Philip Chisholm left school grounds, and the next time his whereabouts could be pinpointed was at a Hollywood Hits movie theater a couple miles away from the school. He bought a ticket to the 430 movie, I believe it was Woody Allen's movie, Blue Jasmine. But he used Colleen Ritz's credit card to purchase the movie ticket. And he sat through the movie, and after the movie, he left. At that point, he went to a nearby Wendy's fast food restaurant again, 
using Colleen Ritzer's credit card to pay for his meal. He sat and ate Wendy's after just butchering a beautiful young woman. At a certain point in between the movie and Wendy's, Chisholm smashed his cell phone and Colleen Ritzer's cell phone in the parking lot in between Wendy's and the movie theater. During this time frame, Colleen was reported missing by her family. She did stay late at school frequently to help these kids. Keep in mind, she does this out of the kindness of her heart. She's not getting paid. So the police go to Danvers High looking for Colleen, and I'm sure they're thinking, well, she's a young teacher. Maybe she went out for a drink afterwards or whatever. So they weren't expecting to find what they did. They found the ladies' room bathroom covered in blood with a trail of blood leading out to the rear of the athletic fields. And I believe it's around this time that Philip Chisholm's mother, Diane, gets worried and calls the police as well. So at a certain time, the wheels start going for the Danvers police. Is this connected? Are these two people who are reported missing, at least for a few hours, are they connected? Are they together? And now they have blood at a tremendous amount of blood in the ladies' room at Danvers High. So while the police at Danvers High are tied up with forensics and investigating Colleen's murder, Mr. Chisholm left Wendy's and he's walking towards Topsfield, Massachusetts on a dark, secluded road. Route 1 is, is kind of a main thoroughfare in that area, but there are sections of it that are residential and almost rural. And this is a section where the Topsfield police, I believe it was a Topsfield police officer by the name of Hovey, comes across Chisholm walking with his backpack down the street. The cops concerned because it is so dark there and they stop Chisholm and he is evasive. Where are you going? He says nowhere. And the cop asked him, Hovey asked him, well, where are you coming from? And he says, Tennessee. So now alarm bells start going off and the kid is just skittish and weird, really. So Topsfield police officer Hovey is concerned and he asks him to accompany him back to the Topsfield police station. And Philip Chisholm does so willingly of his own accord. So they go back to the police station and Chisholm hasn't been read his rights because at this time, Topsfield didn't know that the neighboring town Danvers was even investigating a murder. So it's strange. I know that one jurisdiction just, you know, yards away is investigating a homicide and now they have a potential suspect in the next town, but that's how these things go sometimes. So they ask Chisholm, you know, we're going to look into your backpack and what do they find in there? They find Colleen Richards underwear inside some type of purse in there. I don't know if this white purse that they refer to was Colleen's, but they open the purse and there's a box cutter covered in blood. Colleen Richards ID and credit card was also observed within the backpack. I don't know if it was within this purse or whatever, but it was still within the backpack. I believe Chisholm still had the credit card or debit card that he had stolen from Colleen and used at Wendy's and the movie theater. I'm sorry, guys. So essentially, Topsfield police become involved in this murder investigation. They contact neighboring Danvers, and it all starts to come together. They ultimately put the handcuffs on him about an hour or two after he arrived at the Topsfield police station. 
And at that point, state police and Danvers police arrive at the Topsfield police station. They begin interviewing Philip Chisholm. And at trial, it becomes an issue as to when he was read his Miranda rights. But to be quite frank, it didn't really matter. There was so much evidence. This was such a hastily planned thing. It seems like he wanted to get caught. But he's arrested, and now I'm going to take you through the trial. So the trial begins at Salem Courthouse in late 2015 into 2016. And before the trial begins, they have some hearings to exclude Philip Chisholm's confession. And these suppression hearings were played on television. And Philip Chisholm did confess. I guess he wanted to. It was voluntary, but it was ultimately suppressed. But there was so much other evidence against them. But what he confessed to was actually the detective was pretty masterful. He drew a diagram, a drawing of Colleen and, you know, basically said, you know, Philip, tell me where you cut it. Tell me where you hurt her. So he t makes two marks on the neck. And during the confession, he tries to minimize his brutality and savagery. But there's so much other evidence that Philip Chisholm, I don't even know why he went to trial, to be quite frank. He just put this family through more horror. But the evidence that was found against them, the box cutter had Colleen's blood and DNA on it. There was DNA inside of Colleen related to Philip Chisholm. He was dead in the water on defense. I guess the defense attorneys did a good job, what they could, getting rid of the confession. But the evidence was just too overwhelming. And I didn't mention the media coverage of this case. I'd probably relate it to the Boston Marathon bombing. That's how heavily this case was covered. It wasn't on the news, in the newspapers every single day. And when the facts came out as to the level of savagery this kid, who's 14 years old, leveled against Colleen with the tree branch in her groin and everything else, people were just falling all over themselves with this horror show, and they couldn't believe a juvenile did this. Channel 5 in Boston did an excellent job in their coverage, and a lot of their segments can be seen on YouTube if you're interested. But be forewarned, it is pretty brutal. So there was a tremendous amount of video evidence in this case, all the way from the time when Chisholm followed Colleen into the ladies' room till he took her out. He's covered in blood. His pants are covered in blood. He's caught on tape outside, wheeling the receptacle. He's caught at the movie theater using Colleen's credit card. He's caught on tape at Wendy's. And all the DNA in the backpack on the knife. And something that came out in his confession, he said he had slashed her twice. He had slashed with this box cutter in the neck and other places more than a dozen times. So the only real shot the defense had at an acquittal or something less than a, you know, life imprisonment was an insanity defense. The defense was successful in getting Chisholm's confession thrown out. And in that confession, he did draw the diagram. He drew a map to where Colleen's body was. But two psychologists that I saw in the trial stated that he 
did know what he was doing. This was pre-planned and he knew the consequences of his actions and he may have been a bit crazy, but he didn't meet the standard for insanity in Massachusetts. Very few defendants do. Philip Chisholm, not surprisingly, was convicted of first degree homicide. And I wanted to commend the Ritzer family when they did a victim impact statement, all of them, they were very brave and they really portrayed how Colleen was. And it really came out that she was just a ray of sunshine and did nothing to precipitate this murder. So that is also on YouTube if you want to see their victim impact statements. Everybody always asks why in this case, what was the motivation? And during the suppression hearing, the hearing to suppress Chisholm's confession, a trooper alluded to that. He had asked them, why did you do this or whatever? And Chisholm said there was a trigger word. He wouldn't say what the trigger word was. And that caused him to snap some nonsense. But what I think really happened was Philip Chisholm is a modern day Ted Bundy minus Bundy's intellect. He couldn't control himself. He is a sexually motivated killer and he can't stop. So the trial progressed quicker than most anticipated because there really was no defense for Mr. Chisholm. Once the doctors stated that they did not believe he was insane, there was really nothing left to fight for. So the trial ended and Philip Chisholm was quickly convicted. Something I need to relay to you guys, two months after Colleen Ritz's murder, the Massachusetts Judicial Supreme Court ruled that it was cruel and unusual punishment to give juvenile first-degree murders life sentences without parole. This ruling followed a U.S. Supreme Court decision dictating that the states follow this precedent. So it came from the U.S. Supreme Court in the Massachusetts Judicial Supreme Court followed suit. So although Philip Chisholm was convicted of first-degree homicide, the judge could not sentence him to life without parole. The judge did go on to sentence him to the maximum that he could. He sentenced him to 40 years before he could be eligible for parole. So he had already spent two years in prison awaiting trial. So in 38 years, Philip Chisholm will be up for parole. And the family of Colleen Ritzer was livid over this. I don't know if the judge could have done something more in sentencing. They gave him concurrent sentences, which means the rape and the murder will be served at the same time. I don't know if the judge could have given him consecutive sentences. So once he finishes, you know, 30 years on the rape, he does another 40 on the murder. I don't know if that's possible under this new directive from the Supreme Court. But the Ritzer family was livid that they'd have to go through this all again in 38 years. Mom and dad are getting up there in age a little bit. At a certain point, this is going to fall to their children, but they vowed to be at every parole hearing for this kid. The Ritzer family wasn't as concerned for themselves. They were concerned that he'd do this to somebody else as soon as he got out of prison. And you want to know what? The district attorney's office was concerned as well. They sent a letter to DYS, which is the youth 
facility lockup, the youth prison, really, in Massachusetts. And they stated that he should be in a secure unit at all times with direct supervision. But once they leave the jurisdiction of the court, he becomes the custody of corrections. And in this case, Department of Youth Services Corrections, who handles all juvenile incarceration. The Ritzer's concern of Philip Chisholm hurting somebody else was completely valid. And the Department of Youth Services ignored the district attorney's admonition that this was one dangerous character. A few weeks after conviction, I believe it was a few weeks after conviction, Philip Chisholm struck again. The geniuses at the Department of Youth Services prison placed him in a non-secure facility where these people would get treatment. I'm not saying juveniles shouldn't get treatment, and maybe even Philip Chisholm should get treatment, but he should have been in a totally locked down facility. So shortly after his conviction, Philip Chisholm is with a teacher, believe it or not, and he hides a pencil and he crouches down out of view and crawls along a wall following this woman into the ladies' room. You understand? This is an absolute repeat. And when he follows her into the ladies' room, again, he puts his hand over her mouth and starts assaulting her with the pencil. She tried to scream but her screams were silenced by his hand closing her larynx. Another counselor overheard the struggle in the bathroom and saved her life. But if he had been another 10 feet away, he'd have another victim under his belt. He was facing an additional 60 years for this offense, but this is Massachusetts, and believe me, he'll get nowhere near that. My only hope is that this sentence, whatever he gets for this assault, will be tacked on to the end of the next one, so it keeps him in prison longer. At this point, he's going to be up for parole at age 54. And if you don't think this maniac, who's already attacked two women, could do it again at 54, you're crazy. During Thomas Ritzer's victim impact statement, he stated that he hated Philip Chisholm and called him evil. He is evil. He's evil personified. When I compared him to Ted Bundy earlier, I was dead serious, and I believe there are apt comparisons here. He cannot control himself around women. He wants to harm them, and he wants to rape them. He should never get out of prison. Never. And if you're saying to yourself right now, geez, Barry, these two crimes are so heinous, he'll never get out. Well, I don't think you know the parole system here in Massachusetts. It's heinous. It's packed with people who want to put people on the street and they'll jeopardize your safety to do so. So be advised when this guy comes up for parole. The clinician, as they call him, that was assaulted in DYS ended up being okay, but I think she suffered some pretty severe post-traumatic stress on this case, and I hope she sued the ass off DYS after they went against the DA's recommendation for a secure lockdown for this animal. Philip Chisholm's mother, Diane, did apologize for her son to the Ritzers and to the rest of the Commonwealth, but it's hard for me to believe that this level of psychosis went unnoticed, and there seems to be some strange reasons why they left Tennessee in the first place. 
They claim it's from a relatively intense divorce, but I can't help but think that Philip had something to do with this, and I wonder if he had struck before and somehow it was made to be relatively quiet, and that's why they ended up in Massachusetts, but that's pure speculation at this point. I just wanted to add the Massachusetts Judicial Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on juveniles as it pertains to life sentences is completely asinine, and I believe it's going to cost lives. I believe if Philip Chisholm ever gets out of prison, he will kill again, and maybe he learns. Maybe he learns how to get away with it, right? I believe there should be some provisions for heinous crimes just like this because juveniles, I'm afraid they commit them all the time. And the rich of family's rights shouldn't be subservient to the rights of Philip Chisholm. What he did to her, where he placed that branch, the barbarity of it all, there should be an exception. There should be a heinous crimes exception to this juvenile justice bill. And I hope at one point that comes to fruition, but I'm afraid it's going to take more people to lose their lives before the legislature gets off their ass and does anything. Since this law was enacted, numerous juveniles had received parole because of it, and they've went on to commit more crimes. They've hurt more people. I don't know if any new murders have been committed. I'm assuming there is, just statistically, that would be the way it goes. But it always seems like we're trying to facilitate better treatment for people who have committed murder than those who have suffered murder. And I just think that's ass backwards. But that's just my humble opinion. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you here. This was a tough one, I know. Needed to be told. But we're going to get on to our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon, all right? <laughs>